Hello and welcome to Captivated Audience. My name is Marie Lundberg and I'm joined as always by my good friend and professional colleague, Sam Sheen. Hi Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Marie. How about you? I'm doing well. We have Nick Maxwell with us today. Hello, Nick. Hi, thank you very much for the uh, invitation to join you. Nick, could you please tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where you're currently based? Uh, so I'm uh, Nick Maxwell. I lead the Future of Financial Intelligence Sharing International Research Program within the RUSI Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies. RUSI is a very old think tank in the UK. It stands for the Royal United Services Institute at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies. It's quite new, but has uh, a wide range of research taking place within it. So Nick, tell us a little bit more around your area of specialization. We call it the Triple P or the PPP projects, but tell us a bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so the Future of Financial Intelligence Sharing Research Program, or FIS or FFIS, we focus on this issue of public-private information sharing to support investigations and strategic understanding in relation to financial crime threats. So it's a really interesting kind of part of, of the puzzle when it comes to anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing, national systems, and a number of new partnerships, different models have developed over recent years uh, around the world. So we track those and produce international comparative research on that topic. So can you give us a little bit about around the roots or the origins of the very first uh, public-private information sharing? Because it sort of held up as the example for everyone else. Information sharing and public-private information sharing, you know, is part of the FATF framework. The obligation is there on FIUs to provide feedback to regulated entities. FATF themselves describe information sharing as the cornerstone of the FATF regime. So information sharing as a whole shouldn't be anything new, really. The, the challenge is that, uh, you know, in the context of 2016, 2015, there was a big concern that the impact in terms of law enforcement outcomes, in terms of arrests, in terms of asset recovery from this huge amount of expenditure on financial crime compliance was very poor. And the amount of reporting that was coming through was growing, uh, in some cases 10% or more per year. The amount of that reporting that was useful to law enforcement investigations was very low, typically. So that, that was the context. In that context, the UK government, led by the Home Office, then Theresa May as Home Secretary, and leaders from financial institutions got together with other agencies and said, we would like to support in the UK a greater degree of information sharing, public-private information sharing, and explore the opportunities for both strategic information sharing, but also tactical information sharing relevant to specific investigations, so that this reporting from the financial sector, so that all the resource in the financial sector that should be focused on financial crime is more relevant to priority financial crime threats and investigations. So that came to be in the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in, in the UK, and that's developed over, over the years um, and now exists within an entity called the National Economic Crime Centre within the National Crime Agency. Some people suggest that that is the model, but uh, that's certainly not our experience in terms of uh, looking at different jurisdictions around the world and in how they've developed their information sharing partnerships. For each jurisdiction, it's very important that the national sensitivities, the unique legal environment that, that, that those regulated entities and law enforcement agencies operate under, that the partnership model responds to that. Jurisdictions have different priorities when it comes to financial crime threats different processes and institutional comfort 
with information sharing. So the models actually vary quite a lot and perhaps we can get into some of that. But before we dip into that model, Nick, will you please share with us the countries who have now set up a working PPP besides of the gymlet? Yeah, so you know, in 2017, we saw quite a big volley of partnerships come online. So we had Australia, Fintel Alliance, the Hong Kong Fraud and Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, the Singapore ASIP model, the formal announcement of the US FinCEN Exchange, the Netherlands Terrorist Financing Task Force, Europol. All of that happened in 2017. We also saw Canada come forward with their model of specific projects. But more recently, we've seen uh, partnerships develop in uh, Latvia, a really exciting partnership there. In Germany, we've seen additional partnerships in the Netherlands through the Serious Crime Task Force, uh, additional partnerships supported by the FIU. We've seen a partnership being established in Argentina. I was at the launch of uh, just last year. In 2020, we're seeing South Africa, Sweden, obviously. South Africa, I think, has the dibs on SAMLET, their partnership acronym announced slightly ahead of uh, Sweden, so they'll have to work that out between the two of them. We also have Switzerland, which thankfully doesn't engage in that same acronym dispute because they've referred to theirs as SAMLA. You can see it starts to become an acronym soup. Yeah, lots of countries. Austria has started their public-private partnership. We'll be publishing shortly a paper which provides a comprehensive reference of those different partnerships around the world as of 2020. So uh, look out for that from, from RUSI Future Financial Intelligence Sharing Program. Let's go back to the model then. All these countries and initiatives you talked about, information sharing can be tricky due to legal restrictions and other factors. Nick, in your experience and in your opinion, what will it take to make a PPP truly successful? Yes, so the legal clarity to share information is is obviously absolutely key for a partnership to be successful, for all stakeholders to have confidence in that process. And it's interesting that some of the examples suggest that that legal clarity isn't enough in and of itself. In the US, uh, by virtue of B of Patriot Act 2001, 314A and 314B of the Patriot Act provide for public-private information sharing and private-private information sharing, respectively. And really looking around the world, that is the strongest and clearest enabling legislation for information sharing of this kind. But yet in the US, we didn't see those two provisions being used until 2016, perhaps onwards, you know, with any real degree of vigor. And there was certainly a reluctance from financial institutions to, to engage in that type of sharing. There were challenges in terms of incentives, whether that was whether there was a proper governance process around how that information exchange would take place. So legislation is important, but not enough. Most countries uh, who have developed these public-private partnerships now have uh, started with their existing legal framework. So they've said, okay, we would like to improve our level of information sharing within our legal framework. What is possible? In the Netherlands, with the terrorist financing task force, they again used a specific a pre-existing piece of legislation to support uh, a new model of public-private information sharing within the Terrorist Financing Task Force. And only now really are looking at updating their legislation to provide for a stronger legal basis, a clearer, specifically designed legal basis for purpose. Coming from the private sector perspective, and also to some degree the regulatory perspective, what are the main risks the participants were concerned about when it came to information sharing, because we often talk about its importance for law enforcement investigation, but financial institutions have very serious obligations as regard client confidentiality. So how have some countries managed to mitigate the risk, essentially, that banks and others have expressed concerns around that? 
Yes, so those incentives to participate in the partnership, perhaps, you know, are not necessarily obvious to financial institutions that, that come new to the idea of partnership. And we see that in a number of jurisdictions where perhaps the regulatory culture has been very command and control. There's been a lot of fear, particularly of the supervisor and fear of law enforcement. And in that environment, it can be quite a radical idea to propose to both the financial crime team in a financial institution, propose to legal team, legal counsel, to propose to senior management. Why don't we engage in an information sharing partnership where we voluntarily disclose more information than we need to, potentially, to public agencies in the pursuit of investigations? You can see how some people will just you know, see risk in that picture. It's not necessarily obvious that all the incentives align. But for those partnerships that have developed and grown, they have seen benefits for members, both public and private members, and clear benefits for private sector financial institutions in terms of being able to have a greater understanding of their financial crime risk exposure, to be more responsive to public agencies and to have that dialogue on on what financial crime threats really matter. And that's helped them obviously discharge their responsibilities. But there is this broader issue of what does partnership engagement mean in terms of your supervisory responsibilities? What do supervisors think? How does it it make a difference when it comes to supervisory examinations? Those issues aren't aren't quite clear yet. Um, Very few supervisors have made a clear statement as to what credit might be due to engagement in partnerships, uh, for example. A lot of the existing partnerships seems to be law enforcement that I wonder... What is your thoughts on how are the supervisors to be involved in these partnerships? Yep, so it's a key question. What is the role of the supervisor when it comes to public-private information sharing? Some partnerships are led by the supervisor. In the Singapore partnership, the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorist Financing Industry Partnership, or ASIP, the lead agency is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is also the supervisor along with Singapore police. So there are examples of the supervisor leading. There are also examples where the FIU is leading, but the FIU is the same institution as the supervisor. That's the case in Australia. It's also the case in Canada. It's the case in the US with the Vincent Exchange. The challenge is how do we engage all parties in a constructive information sharing exercise which supports the objectives of the partnership Whatever they may be, they do vary, but let's just say to support law enforcement investigations in in this case. How do we encourage that without exposing the members to more regulatory risks so that if there is a sense that they may be punished for engaging in good faith in this information sharing exercise from a regulatory compliance perspective. But at the same time, you're not able to give a blank check to financial institutions who supervisors may discover that there has been a significant breach that's worthy of a compliance investigation. So that tension is really quite significant and one for partnerships to carefully manage in their governance process. Another question I wanted to ask you is in relation to the UK's mutual evaluation by the FATF, and a lot of attention was focused on the Gimlet when it was first created. There was one observation that really resonated with me, and that's in relation to smaller or specialized sectors. And I have heard it said a number of times that industries you really want to get to the table, who might be emerging businesses or innovative businesses, or perhaps more specialized, can sometimes be more vulnerable to financial crime, but they don't have a seat at the table. And often they view this as something monopolized by the big financial institutions. Can you tell me about some initiatives different partnerships are taking to try and and break down the wall? In the FFIS study of of March last year, we really looked at this question of can partnerships 
scale up. It's not immediately obvious that the model can scale up because in the original formats, they were very dependent on human-to-human -human interaction. In some cases, they were dependent on high levels of trust, interpersonal trust, the energy and enthusiasm of individuals, voluntary in addition to their comp regulatory compliance programs, and countries that could get everybody in the room, the vast majority of quarters of suspicious activity reports by virtue of institution, were able to kind of take off very quickly and demonstrate response very quickly. But even if you have those largest financial institutions who are the largest reporters of, uh, in, in the country, there's still a remainder. So how do you deal with that remainder? And how do you deal with sectors that aren't reporting but should because they are exposed to financial crime risk? It involves issues of trust, issues of information security. How do you, how does all the participants in a financial information sharing partnership, how do they have confidence that all the other members are handling information appropriately, which can be a personnel issue, it can be an IT systems issue, and how does information transfer, which doesn't rely on the size of a room. That's been a real challenge for, for partnerships to engage in. And to date, most partnerships have certainly started with a group that's manageable. Have you seen some try and take active initiative, like, for example, requiring, if you like, the, the changeover of representatives from the financial institutions or sharing the chairing responsibilities? You know, what sort of very basic elements are you seeing to try and, and maintain that cooperative spirit and not sort of make it all key person or key institution dependent on its survival? Yeah, I think it's a balancing act and it depends where the partnerships are in their development in their in their journey it's important not to discount the importance of individuals and their energy their personal energy that they put behind things many of these partnerships wouldn't exist without that personal effort many of the public private partnerships wouldn't necessarily exist if there wasn't interpersonal trust between individuals on both sides so it's it's really important processes and governance of course the appropriate accountability needs to be in place sometimes a governance or control mechanism can have a dampening effect on innovation so so partnerships need to retain that ability to adapt to change priorities as priorities themselves it's it's a real challenge to get the governance right you're right that co-chairing of groups has been an important factor we see that in uk gimlet and in, in the expert working group model we also see it in the europol model in terms of forcing individuals out, I think that's tricky because so many partnerships, certainly at this stage around the world, are really reliant on individuals and their personal energy that they're contributing to that effort, and it would suffer without those individuals. Okay, Nick, one final question. You mentioned the report in the beginning. Where can we find it once it's been published? Yep, so you can find it on the RUSI website. We also promote through LinkedIn primarily. And we will also publish through the new global coalition to fight financial crime. That global coalition is about providing a platform for research and policy thinking to enhance the effectiveness of the financial crime regime worldwide and provides a lot of reference material. Excellent. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you have been extremely busy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. And if you would like to do as Nick has done and participate in one of our future podcasts, or if you've even got some ideas on future topics you'd like us to cover, you'll have to do it soon because shortly we'll be going on summer break. In the meantime, you can reach out onto our website on captivatedaudience.eu or feel free to drop us a note directly on our new LinkedIn webpage, Captivated Audience. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.